Josephine Bakita, a survivor of human trafficking by Jean Alwyn Maynard, read by Sandra Geyer. Part Two. Passed from hand to hand. When I had recovered from this thrashing, I was put to other work, but my destiny was marked. I was to leave that house at the earliest opportunity. The opportunity came three months later, and I was sold to a new master, a general in the Turkish army. He had his old mother and his wife living with him. Both of them were dreadfully cruel towards the poor slaves who were kept constantly hard at work in their kitchen, laundry, and fields. I and another young girl were put in the service of the two ladies. We couldn't leave them even for a moment, what with dressing them, fanning them, and perfuming them. We never got a break, and woe betide us if accidentally, perhaps because we were so short of sleep, we had either of them, the tiniest little bit. The lashes fell on our backs without mercy. In the whole three years I was in their service, I don't recall having got through a single day without a beating. No sooner did my wounds heal than more lashes rained down on my back without my even knowing why. One day, I was telling my companion how I ran away from my first master the general's daughter had everything, and for fear I might try to escape, she made me wear a great chain on my foot. I had to drag it round for over a month. It was only taken off on the occasion of a great Muslim feast when they were supposed to release all the slaves from their shackles. Every day, slaves had to get up at dawn. The lady, the general's wife, was so zealous that sometimes she got up before everyone else to keep watch in case anyone was even a minute late. Then she was after him with the whip, making him leap with pain. She never cared how late into the night the poor wretch might have had to toil the previous evening. The slaves all slept in a dormitory. We got nothing to eat until midday, when each of us was given a portion of meat stew, cornmeal, bread and fruit. In the evening, a scanty supper and then to rest on the bare ground. Woe betide anyone who didn't keep absolute silence. Poor victims of human tyranny. Anyone who fell ill wasn't even looked at but just left there without treatment or help. Anyone who died was thrown into the fields or onto a rubbish tip. How much ill-treatment and whipping we poor slaves received without any reason. For example, one day we found ourselves present by chance when the master had a row with his wife. To work off his bad temper, he ordered us to go down to the yard and commanded two soldiers to fling us on the ground face up to be flogged. The soldiers set about their cruel torture with all their might, leaving both of us bathed in our own blood. I can still remember how the cane, aimed again and again at my thighs, was taking out skin and flesh and gouging out a long, narrow wound which pinned me down on my sleeping mat 
for months, unable to move. I had to bear everything in silence because nobody came to dress our wounds or give us any word of comfort. Many of my companions in misfortune died under the blows they suffered. Most of the children had heard the story many times before, but even those hearing it for the first time weren't upset or frightened. They knew this was a good story, a story with a happy ending. Everything came right eventually. Tattooed Black Mother had scars and marks all over her body. They were normally hidden under her enveloping habit, but the smaller children all knew about them and often begged her for a look. Although it embarrassed her to have to unbutton her clothes even a little way, she usually gave in and let them have a quick peep. If anyone asked about it, she just said, Poor things, why not? Maybe it'll make them more grateful to our Lord for letting them be born in Italy. To adults and older children, she would explain more fully about the marks. It was the custom for slaves, for the honour of their masters, to wear tattoos, designs or patterns cut into their bodies. Up to then, I didn't have any, while my companions had lots even on their faces and arms. Well, our mistress took a whim to make a present of this sort of decoration to those of us who weren't already tattooed. There were three of us. A woman expert in this cruel art arrived. She took us to the porch while the mistress stood behind us whip in hand. The woman had a dish of white flour fetched and another of salt and eraser. She ordered the first one to lie down on the ground and two of the strongest slaves were to hold her, one by the arms and the other by the legs. Then she bent over the poor girl and, using the flower, began to trace on her belly about sixty fine marks. I stood there watching everything, knowing that afterwards they were going to perform the same torture on me. Once the marks were completed, the woman took the razor and swish, swish, sliced along each mark she traced, while the poor girl groaned and blood welled up from each cut. When this operation was finished, she took the salt and rubbed it as hard as she could over each wound so that it would go in and enlarge the cut and keep the edges open. The agony and torment. The victim was writhing in pain and I was shaking in anticipation. When the first girl was taken away to her sleeping mat, it was my turn. I didn't think I had the strength to move, but one glance at the mistress and her whip made me get down immediately onto the ground. The woman was ordered to spare my face, so she started off by making six designs on my chest and then about sixty on my belly and forty-eight on the right arm. What it felt like, I cannot put into words. I kept thinking, this is it, I'm going to die. Especially when she rubbed the salt into me. Covered in blood, I was carried into my sleeping mat where I lay semi-conscious for hours on end.
when I came to, I saw beside me the other two who along with me had been made to suffer this atrocity. For over a month, all three of us were condemned to lie there, stretched out on the reed matting, unable to move, without even a piece of rag to dry the pus which seeped continuously from the wounds, kept half open by the salt. I've still got the scars. I can honestly say the only reason I didn't die was through a miracle of the Lord who destined me for better things. Black Mother was quite clear that the way she had been treated was very wrong. She hoped very much for the situation she had known in Sudan to be changed completely so that no one else would have to suffer as she had. Nevertheless, she didn't hate those who had inflicted so much pain on her and wouldn't have them demonised. When one sister exploded in righteous indignation against those wicked slave owners, she placed a finger on her lips. Shh, poor things, they weren't wicked. They didn't know God. And also, maybe they didn't realise how much they were hurting me. On another occasion, she smiled and said, I pray for them a lot that our Lord, who has been so very good and generous to me, will be the same with them and bring them all to conversion and salvation. The Mahdi Gordon's apparent success in suppressing slavery in Sudan had made good newspaper headlines in Europe, but he himself knew he was fighting a losing battle and his efforts had infuriated many powerful groups. The fact that he was not only a foreigner, but also a Christian, could make it very easy to unite the different factions in an uprising against his authority. At the same time, serious trouble was brewing in Egypt, where the country's modernisation along European lines had tied it very firmly into the global economy, an economy dominated by European capital. The Suez Canal had been built with Egyptian labour, but very soon the Khedive was obliged to sell his shares in it to Britain because his debts were spiralling out of control. In 1879, Ismail was deposed in favour of his son, Mohammed Tawvih, who ruled thereafter as a British puppet. An attempt by indigenous Egyptians to resume control over their own country was ruthlessly suppressed. When Gordon heard what had happened, he resigned, so creating an abrupt power vacuum in Sudan. Times of extreme crisis throw up apocalyptic expectations. In some parts of the Ismailic world, the expectation can focus on a Mahdi, or divinely appointed leader. On Abar Island, in the stretch of the White Nile which flows along the border of Kordofan, a pious young Sufi named Muhammad Ahmad grew convinced that he was the longed-for Mahdi, called by God to set right a world which had gone astray. On the 29th of June, 1871, he proclaimed a new creed. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God, and Muhammad al-Mahdi is the successor of God's prophet. Komboni, visiting his mission in Khartoum at the time, was aware of the nascent revolt, but attached little importance to it. 
the new governor, General Rauf Pasha, had sent troops to put it down. Returning to Khartoum, he reported, sadly, in response to an inquiry from Rauf, that slaving continued to flourish in the Nuba Mountains. In October, several of his missionaries fell ill, and he helped look after them before succumbing himself. On the 10th of October, he died. Successive armies were sent against the Mahdi, but each in turn was defeated. Bikita and her fellow slaves were told nothing about what was going on, but they were aware that the master was away from home. He must have been involved in some of the failed campaigns. Certainly he could see the writing on the wall, and, around the middle of 1882, decided to get out of Africa before it was too late. After an absence of several months, the general returned to Kodofan, having made up his mind to return to Turkey. He set about making preparations for departure, and since he had a large number of slaves, he selected ten of us, including me, and sold off the rest. We left Kodofan, and after several days' journey on camelback, we put up in an inn in Khartoum. There he put the word around to anyone who wanted to buy slaves. Callisto Lignani The Italian consular agent paid a call. I was told to bring him a coffee. I saw him examining me from head to foot but never imagined he was planning to buy me. I only realized the next day when the Turkish general told me to go with the consul's housekeeper to help her carry a package. This time I was really lucky because the new master was so good and took a great liking to me. My job was to help the housekeeper with the domestic work. The countries of Western Europe all maintained representatives in Sudan, and those who couldn't afford a professional diplomat arranged for part-time cover by one of their nationals already there on business. Calisto Lignani, who had already spent two years trading in gum Arabic, was appointed consular agent in 1880. He must have made frequent trips to El Obeid and been personally acquainted with the Turkish general from whom he purchased Bikita. It's a fair indication of the failure of the many attempts to suppress slavery in Sudan that even resident Europeans routinely bought and held slaves. Lignani was a frequent visitor to the Catholic mission in Khartoum. Did this mean he took Bikita there? or at least mentioned it to her? No, it didn't. Even someone who took the Catholic faith seriously might have hesitated to share it with his Sudanese servants, who were automatically assumed to be Muslim. However, Lignani's visits to the mission did not indicate religious conviction. Every European in Khartoum visited the mission. The Italian traders attended mass regularly and were often pillars of the parish even though in Europe they might never go inside a church, for they were all very gung-ho for Italy's recently won unity and independence, and such an attitude at that date usually went along with a sharp anti-Catholicism. In Khartoum, there wasn't much else to do, and dropping in at the mission gave them an opportunity to meet fellow countrymen and help to assuage their nostalgia for Europe. In Khartoum, as in El Obeid, Bikita remained completely unaware that there was a Catholic mission in the town, and she had still never heard a word about Christianity. 
Nevertheless, Lenyani proved a decent, kindly master, and she was very happy in his service. There were no scoldings, no punishments, no beatings. I couldn't believe I was enjoying so much peace and quiet. In the Camp of the Mahdi For the missionaries in Kodafan, meanwhile, all peace and quiet was at an end. El Obeid was under siege by the Mahdists. The staff of an outlying mission at Dilling surrendered and were taken as prisoners to the Mahdists' camp, where repeated efforts were made to convert them to Islam. The Austrian consul in Khartoum sent money to ransom them, but it was refused. Eventually, on the 27th of September, they were told that unless they converted, they would be put to death the following day. The eight missionaries, priests, brothers and sisters spent the night praying and writing goodbye letters to their families. At 9am, they were led out in front of the 40,000-strong Mahdist army and ordered to kneel and bow their heads for the executioner's sword. Just then, the Mahdi rode up on a white camel and ordered a stay of execution to give them one more chance. Taken before the Mahdist leaders, each was asked, what do you choose, Islam or death? Each one chose death. Most of the leaders argued that they should be killed, but Khalid Ahmad al-Omarabi declared that Islamic law forbids the execution of church persons who surrender without fighting. The Mahdi acknowledged that he was correct. However, the missionaries remained prisoners and were not allowed to leave the camp. In January 1883, El Obeid surrendered. Thirty horsemen came to the mission and carried off Bikitakwashi together with four other sisters. They too were ordered to become Muslims, but refused. They were made to march with the army barefoot over the hot sand, sharp rocks and thorn bushes of the desert, and at one point a sister was hung upside down and beaten on the soles of her feet. To her relief, Bikita Kwashi wasn't singled out to be treated any worse than the others, though as a Sudanese ex-slave, she might have been considered, technically, an apostate from Islam. When the Mahdi heard how the nuns were being treated, he disapproved and ordered them brought into his own enclosure for safety. Later, some of the missionaries managed to escape and make their way to safety in Egypt. Bikita Kwashi was one of those few. The rest remained prisoners for many years, living in harsh conditions in which half of them died. For the moment, the revolt appeared confined to Western Sudan, and Callisto Lignani saw no cause for alarm. From September, it was under siege by the Mahdists. Even as the year drew to a close, most inhabitants remained confident that the British army was on its way and all would be well. However, when Bikita heard that Lignani was planning another trip to Italy, she took notice, not because she was frightened and anxious to get out of the beleaguered city, but for another reason that she couldn't clearly explain. I don't know why, but when I heard him name Italy, although I knew nothing of its beauty and charm, a keen desire sprang up in my heart to accompany my master. He liked me so much, I dared to ask him to take me to Italy with him. 
He explained to me how long and expensive the journey was, but I insisted so much that he agreed to please me. It was God who wished it, I realized later. I can still feel the joy I experienced at that moment. We set off. By we, I mean the consul and his friend, a young black boy, and myself, riding on camel all together in a caravan. After a few days' journey, we reached Swakin. Khartoum was by then virtually surrounded by rebel forces, but Lenyani and his friend, a fellow businessman named Augusto Micheli, must have known a way for a small party to sneak through. The Fall of Khartoum On the night of the 25th of January, 1885, the Mahdi's forces crossed over the White Nile to mass around the southern ramparts of Khartoum, where a slight fall in the level of the river had exposed a sandbank. This foothold enabled them to breach the city's defences and, as the following day broke, take it by storm. Gordon was killed in the fighting, and many thousands of people, starting with the European residents and all identifiable Christians who refused to adopt Islam, were put to the sword. Bakita's knowledge of the events was limited to what her owners chose to mention to her. After about a month, the consul and his friend received the sad news that a gang of rebels had entered the city of Khartoum, had destroyed everything, and taken possession of all the slaves. Since the consul and the other gentlemen had been robbed of everything, they were very upset. If I had stayed there, I would certainly have been stolen, and what would have become of me? How much I thank the Lord for having saved me yet again! We stayed in Suakin for a month, then began our voyage by ship across the Red Sea and other seas as far as Genoa. There we took lodgings in a guest house whose proprietor was well known to the consul's friend and had asked him to purchase a black boy for him. So the boy who had been my companion during the voyage was immediately made over to him. The friend's wife had come to meet him and seeing us two blacks, said she wanted one and asked her husband why he hadn't bought one for her and her little daughter. The consul, to please his friend and her, made a present of me to them. Lenyani and the Michaelis were all making for destinations in the Veneto region, on the opposite side of the Italian peninsula from Genoa. Probably they covered this last leg by train, but at certain points the parties broke up. The consul headed for Padua and I never had anything more of him. My new master and mistress and I made our way to Mirano, Veneto, where for three years I was nursemaid to their little daughter. Mirano is a small town a short distance inland from Venice, and the Michelis family home stood in an outlying village named Zainago. Bikita's account, which was only written down years later, slides over a detail. Michele's wife, Maria Turner, had a son of about five and had given birth to a baby girl the previous summer, but this girl died very young and Bikita never mentions her. The daughter she did look after was not born until February 1886. 
Magnificently named Alicia Alessandra Augusta, she was known to Paquita by her pet name, Mimina. The baby came to love me dearly, and I naturally came to feel a similar affection for her. Shortly after Mimina's birth, Augusto Michieli returned to open a hotel in Suakin. The Red Sea port still remained in Egyptian hands. Whether because Britain was prepared to defend it more effectively than Khartoum, or perhaps because the Mahdists were never all that interested in taking it so long as they could control its heartland, it never fell to the insurgents. Bikita, together with the rest of the Michieli family, remained in Zainagal. Only at the end of 1886 did Augusto send for them all to come out and join him. During their absence, the empty house with the small farm attached to it would be left in the hands of the Michieli's local agent, Illuminato Cecchini. Farewell to Africa After three years had gone by, I returned with the mistress to Suakin in Africa, where her husband was running a large hotel. We stayed for around nine months, after which the master decided that the whole family should make their permanent home there. However, the mistress would have to return to Italy to sell off the property and pack up the furniture. I was supposed to stay, meanwhile, at the hotel with the baby, but the mistress didn't fancy travelling on her own, so it was agreed that we should both go with her. Then I bade in my heart an eternal farewell to Africa. An inner voice told me I would never see it again. The return to Zainago took place in the autumn of 1887. Maria Turiner duly set about selling the house and land, naturally taking advice from Cecchini. The agent's visits to the house led to some friction, as he was shocked to realise that Bikita had never been offered religious instruction. He persuaded the Michele's housekeeper to say prayers with the African girl each morning. It's unlikely that the housekeeper's devotions, whether rattled off in Italian or in Latin, meant anything to Paquita, but the arrangement certainly annoyed their mistress. If Augusto was fundamentally irreligious, Maria Turina was more so. She wasn't Italian, but Russian, daughter of a wealthy St. Petersburg family, and although nominally orthodox, like many upper-class Russians of the time, she claimed to be an atheist. She didn't want Cecchini, as she saw it, upsetting the servants. The Michielis belonged to that well-heeled class for whom Italian reunification and independence had brought solid benefits. By contrast, Cecchini, son of a village cartmaker, was essentially a peasant. He knew only too well that in the new Italy, conditions for the rural poor had deteriorated and it was a matter of deep concern for him, even though he, personally, was not too badly affected. He viewed his employer's fashionable superficiality about spiritual values with instinctive scepticism, and quietly set about subverting it. Although he'd never had much formal education, having left school early to help his father in the workshop, he had plenty of native intelligence and a mind of his own. He was deeply religious and, in his home parish of Salzano, used to play the organ in church. 
He got on specially well with the parish priest assigned to Sazzano in 1867, Father Giuseppe Sarto, a remarkable priest unreservedly dedicated to his pastoral and charitable work. He and Cecchini used to play cards together. They kept in touch even after Cecchini's marriage in 1870, when he moved to Zainago to make a career as a middleman and business agent for the local farmers and small landlords. He was well known locally as a source of excellent advice, which was free for those in trouble, and he was very active in promoting self-help schemes, such as savings banks and mutual assurance societies. It took Maria Turner a whole year to sell off the property, and even then there were still some bits of business which couldn't yet be finished. She was missing her husband, so she decided to take a break, travel out to Africa, and spend some time with him. Since she wouldn't be there long, it hardly seemed worthwhile to drag the baby out with her. She laid her plans before Cecchini. Could he suggest somewhere suitable for Paquita and Mimina to stay during her absence? Preferably a boarding school, where Paquita could receive some education. What she had in mind by education, and whether it was realistic given that Paquita was nearly 20 and had never previously attended any schooling, is not clear. Cecchini knew just the place. The Catechumenate in Venice. It was run by the Canossian sisters, the same congregation which had a house in Murano. Maria Turana must know how eminently respectable they were. They could certainly be trusted to ensure that the two girls were properly looked after. Catechumenate. Since Vatican II, the term catechumenate has made a comeback. Many Catholics today would recognise it as a process of Christian initiation. Probably to Maria Turana, however, the term meant nothing, and although her husband was a scion of the Venetian Patriot, she herself was unlikely to have known the history of the Catechumenate. It had been set up in 1557 purposely to house adult non-Christians wishing to receive instruction in the faith. Because such individuals were often rejected by their communities of origin and faced the loss of home, family and livelihood, the institution offered them shelter and practical help in beginning a whole new way of life. Venice's widespread trading contacts and comparative religious toleration made it a meeting point of cultures and the flow of converts remained impressive for well over a century. Although the catechumenate never enjoyed the security of lavish endowments, it enjoyed a certain social cachet which attracted interest and donations from the Patriot and, after beginning operations in rented premises, moved to a permanent site on the edge of the city. Twice the premises were rebuilt, each time on a larger and grander scale. There were separate sections for men and women, with a small church dedicated to St John the Baptist standing between, But after Napoleon crushed the independence of the Venetian Republic, the magnificent buildings fell into disuse. The Canossian sisters had been asked to take over the women's section in 1848. They did run a school on the premises, though it was actually a day school for poor girls from the neighbourhood. They also maintained the historic links with the institution, with the city's aristocracy, by organising prayer meetings and conferences for society ladies. Strictly speaking, they had no boarding school facilities, but naturally, if ever the opportunity arose, they would be more than happy to fulfil the catechumenate's original purpose, 
by offering religious instruction to prospective converts. Cecchini took it upon himself to negotiate the arrangements. Once he had explained the situation, the sisters readily agreed to accept Paquita, but there was a technical difficulty about Mimia. If she'd been unbaptized, they would happily have stretched a point and put her down, as they planned to do with Paquita, as a candidate for instruction, though she was not yet three. But the Michieli's irreligion was purely conventional, and their children were all baptized. Maria Torrena would not agree to separate arrangements being made for the two girls. They must be kept together. She expressed willingness to pay for their board and lodging, but since she was about to leave the country, it might be difficult to hold her to this. Resolving the difficulty took a whole month, during which Cecchini visited the Michieli household frequently. One day, he gave Paquita a small silver crucifix. Giving me the crucifix, he kissed it with devotion, then explained to me that Jesus Christ, Son of God, died for us. I didn't know what it was, but impelled by a mysterious force, I hid it in case my mistress took it off me. Before then, I had never hidden anything because I was never attached to anything. I remember how I used to look at it in secret and feel inside myself something I couldn't explain. That is your home now. Not until the very end of the year did Maria Torrena, together with Illuminato Cecchini, his wife and his five children, escort Paquita and Mimina to Venice and install them in the catechumenate. To make sure his carefully laid strategy didn't fall through, Cecchini had personally guaranteed to defray all expenses involved in looking after both the girls if the Michielis defaulted. When my mistress accompanied me to the institute, she turned round on the doorstep to bid me goodbye and said, There. That is your home now. She said this without having any idea what she was really saying. Oh, if she had realized what was going to happen, she'd never have brought me there. Wide-eyed, Bikita was led into the large, cool building and up a spiral staircase, above which the ceiling was painted to depict the baptism of Christ. I was entrusted together with the baby to a sister who was well experienced in instructing catechumens Maria Fabretti. Tears come into my eyes whenever I think of all the care she took of me. She asked if it was my desire to become a Christian, and hearing that I did desire it and was come with that intention, she was filled with joy. Then those holy mothers instructed me with heroic patience and brought me into a relationship with that God whom ever since I was a child, I had felt in my heart without knowing who he was. Paquita stressed the patience of Sister Fabretti and her fellow Canossians because she knew it hadn't been easy for them. She was obedient and cooperative as ever and eager to learn, but she could speak only a broken mixture of standard Italian and the Veneto dialect. It was very difficult for her to understand properly what was said to her unless it related to practical matters immediately to hand. Everything had, of course, to be conveyed verbally or through pictures. The instruction sessions could never be supplemented by giving her material to read later. Not long after their arrival, she and Mimina were spotted from the balcony of a house just opposite by six-year-old Giulia della Fonte, who began coming over each morning to play with the baby. Giulia was fascinated by the black nursemaid, of whom Mimina was clearly so fond. 
Fakita was always smiling, and yet there was something odd about the smile. It was a kind smile, but it wasn't a happy one. Why was Paquita so sad inside? Unfortunately, there was no way of finding out. Julia could hardly understand anything she said. Since the time she arrived at Lignani's house in Khartoum, Paquita would have said she was happy. But deep inside, her spirit remained painfully crushed by her horrific experiences. And though her circumstances had changed so dramatically, she couldn't just shrug off the memories. Nevertheless, the hope had begun to dawn in her that a healing of her spirit might be possible. Bikita soon realised that whether or not people understood her, she could always talk to God, who understood everything and didn't even require words. When left to her own devices, even while keeping an eye on Mimina, Bikita made the most of her opportunities for prayer. She often spent time in front of the large crucifix in the downstairs parlour, There was also the domestic chapel, where a statue of Our Lady of La Salette had been installed making it into a minor pilgrimage centre, or St. John the Baptist next door. Alternatively, with Mimina skipping along beside her, she could take a little walk round to Our Lady of Health, a church whose dome she could see from the window of their room. In that church there was an old icon of the Madonna and Child, brought from Crete by the evacuated garrison, when the island a Venetian colony since the Fourth Crusade, was surrendered to the Turks in 1670. As in so many of Europe's most venerated Marian images, the figures depicted in it were black. No. The best part of a year went by, as if in a lovely dream, until on the 27th of October, 1889, Maria Turna turned up again. All her business had been settled, and it was time now for Mimina and Paquita to travel back with her to Africa, this time for good. Paquita's new job behind the hotel bar was waiting for her in Suakin. And it was then that Paquita said no, she wasn't going. I refused to go with her to Africa because I was not yet instructed to be baptised. I also thought that even if I had been baptised, It wouldn't be easy to practice my new religion there, and therefore it was better for me to stay with the sisters. Never before in her life had Paquita flatly refused to obey an order. Maria Turina went through the roof. She raged and stormed at Paquita, reminding her of all the Michielis had done for her, pointing out all the arrangements that had been made on the assumption that she would continue to be part of their household, and threatening her with dire consequences if she was so silly as to upset everyone. In the 19th century, it was generally assumed that for any young woman to dare to make her own life decisions was both wrong and dangerously foolish. She must defer to her parents, or in the case of a servant with no family of her own, her employers. Behind this assumption lay a harsh reality, as with domestic slaves in African societies, The shelter, even of an exploiting household, was usually a far better option than any of the likely alternatives. Bikita didn't feel in the least indignant at Maria Turina's attitude. On the contrary, she saw it as largely justified. If the Michielis had been cruel masters, the issue might have seemed more clear-cut, but they weren't. They really had tried to do what they thought was best for her. Also, She was emotionally attached to the family and positively adored Mimina, 
every accusation went through her like a knife. Feeling horribly torn apart, again and again, she was on the point of giving in. What stopped her was not the belief that she had the right to do what she wanted with her own life, but the recognition that she owed a higher loyalty to God. Eventually, Maria Torrena stormed out. Exhausted, Bikita went down to the parlour and spent a long time praying in front of the crucifix there. It made me suffer to see her so disgusted with me because I really liked her. It was our Lord who gave me the strength to be so firm about it because he wanted to make me his. How good he is. Her ordeal wasn't over. Next day, Maria was back, together with a lady friend, someone clearly very rich and important. Together, they resumed the attack, alternatively pleading and threatening. Still, Paquita wouldn't give in, and after they'd gone, she was back praying in front of the crucifix. Patriarch and Procurator By now, Everyone in the catechumenate knew about the row, which was creating tremendous embarrassment. The sisters, although they liked Paquita and would have loved to keep her with them, tried to persuade her to do what Maria Torrena wanted, but she insisted. No, I won't leave the house of the Lord. It would be the ruin of me. What could she mean by that? After being excluded from the rest of Sudan, the Verona missionaries had established a mission in Suakin, so it wasn't a place without any Catholic presence or access to the sacraments. Moreover, the Mahdist regime itself had been defeated and overthrown by Lord Kitchener the previous year, bringing Sudan under British rule. There seemed no obvious reason for Paquita to be so dead set against returning to Africa. Why give up the prospect of a secure home and job for life and alienate the wealthy family which had offered their protection? For her to stay in the catechumenate might be no problem for the next year or so, but what about her long-term future? However, Bikita instinctively knew that she would not be capable of living in its fullness the Christian life to which God was calling her in baptism, if trapped in the profoundly unsupportive environment of an irreligious household in a non-Christian country. Behind all other considerations lay the basic question of Bikita's legal status. Did the Michaelis legally own her? Father Jacopo, the elderly aristocratic priest, who was rector of the catechumenate, didn't know what to do. When Bikita, despite everything, persisted in her refusal, he decided to seek advice from higher up and wrote to the Patriarch of Venice, Domenico Agustini. The Patriarch in turn sought an opinion from the royal procurator, who replied categorically that slavery did not exist in Italy. Therefore, Paquita was free and could not be compelled to return to Sudan. Maria Turina herself approached the procurator, but got the same response. On the third day, the 29th of November, a summit meeting was held in the parlour. Maria Turina arrived, flanked by the lady friend who'd come before, and a male relative wearing the impressive uniform of an army officer. The Patriarch was there, the Priest President, and Mother General of the Canossian Congregation, Father Jacopo, and some of the sisters who worked in the catechumenate. The government authorities were represented by the Procurator and the Prefect. The Patriarch spoke first. 
There followed a long discussion which concluded in my favor. Mrs. Torina, weeping with rage and disappointment, seized the child who didn't want to be separated from me and was clinging to me to try to make me come. I was so upset I couldn't say a word. I left them weeping and went out satisfied that I hadn't given in. Next morning, Julia Delafonte danced in as usual to find Paquita sitting alone in floods of tears. Mimina had gone away to Africa and she would never see her again. Baptism Paquita was baptised in the Church of St. John the Baptist on the 9th of January 1890. Illuminato Cecchini and his family were the first to arrive and little Julia was there with her mother and aunt. Besides this handful of personal contacts, the flower of the old Venetian nobility turned out for the occasion. At the request of his devout but bedridden wife, Countess Giuseppina, and perhaps also of his relative, Father Jacopo, Count Marco Avogrado di Soranzo stood godfather, and Lady Margarita Donati was godmother. Three baptismal names were conferred. Giuseppina Margarita Fortunata. Giuseppina Josephine for the Countess, Margarita, Margaret for her godmother, and Fortunata as the Latin translation of Bikita's Arabic name. Immediately after her baptism, she was confirmed and given First Holy Communion by the Patriarch. The ceremony over, those present were invited into the parlour for refreshments. Julia, Overawed, stood off to one side, watching Paquita being lionised by all the lords and ladies. Eventually, Paquita saw her, smiled and beckoned her over and kissed her and then kept her close. Clearly, she felt just as out of place as the child. Neither of them dared to sample the refreshments. When everyone else had gone, Father Jacopo kindly invited just the two of them to join him for lunch in his own quarters. Julia was overwhelmed to see Paquita's radiant joy. The sadness was gone and she seemed completely transfigured. Thinking that this must be what a saint looked like, the little girl kissed Paquita's hands again and again. To know the Lord and to belong to him was something so wonderful that all the pain and sorrow of the past shrank into a speck of insignificance beside it. Even more wonderfully, Bikita understood now that the Lord had always been there, caring for her and watching over her. If he had allowed the pain and sorrow, there must have been a purpose in it. To understand what that purpose could have been was beyond her, but that didn't matter. He knew, and she was content to trust him. It was traditional for new converts to remain in the catechumenate for a whole year following baptism, for their instruction to be consolidated. During this time, Julia continued to visit Paquita and enjoy her company, attracted now not only by her natural goodness, but by the happiness that shone out of her, a happiness that never seemed to evaporate. Cecchini also kept in touch, and made it clear that as soon as she was ready to resume normal life, there was a place for her in his family. She would become an honorary daughter, and as such, would have a dowry settled on her so she could look forward to a comfortable marriage. There need be no danger of becoming stuck in a religious institution with nowhere else to go. Nevertheless, at the end of her neophyte year, Bikita begged the sisters to let her remain, 
They agreed, and she continued to live there up to the summer of 1893. I stayed in the catechumenate for four years, during which time I was hearing more and more clearly in the depths of my soul a gentle voice drawing me to want to become a sister myself. In the end, I spoke about it to my confessor. He suggested that I should speak to the superior, Sister Luigia Botticella, who wrote to the superior of the mother house in Verona, Mother Anna Previtali. That good mother not only agreed to my request, but added that she herself wished to have the satisfaction of clothing me in the holy habits and in due course to receive my profession. In order to confirm her vocation by first returning to the world, Bikita now left the catechumenate to spend three months with the Cicchini family in Dainago. She enjoyed this interlude of normal family life, but it didn't raise any doubts about the way of life towards which God was calling her. On the 7th of December, 1893, I entered the novitiate right there in the house of catechumens in Venice. After a year and a bit had gone by, I was called to Verona for my clothing. Everything seemed to be going smoothly. Neither she nor her confessors felt any doubts about her vocation. However, at that time, Nobody was allowed to take religious vows without prior examination by someone fairly senior in the hierarchy who was responsible for establishing that they had the personal maturity to make a free choice and had not been improperly pressurised. In Bikita's case, the examination was conducted personally by the Patriarch of Venice, now no longer Augustini who had confirmed her, but Cicchini's former parish priest, Giuseppe Sarto. He told her, Don't have any fears about taking your holy vows. Jesus wants you. Jesus loves you. And you are to love him and serve him always in the same way. In the House of the Lord I returned to Verona to pronounce my sacred vows on the 8th of December 1896. God allowed the ceremony to take place in time for Mother Prevotali to see it, as she had so much wished to, since she was to pass away a month later on the 11th of January, 1897. It gave me great satisfaction to be given the medallion of Our Lady of Sorrows by the Reverend Mother Superior and be received into the community. It was the feast day of the Immaculate Conception 1896. The Cecchini family were present, of course. They would always remain her family, and even after Illuminato himself died, she would never lose touch with his children and grandchildren. After the ceremony, there was a special visit to be made. The newly professed sister was escorted to the ancestral mansion of the Canossa family to be given a guided tour of the foundress's childhood home and meet the 87-year-old bishop, Luigi di Canossa, who was most anxious to see this unusual new recruit to his aunt's congregation. For another five to six years, Black Mother continued to live quietly in the familiar and beloved surroundings of the catechumenate in Venice. Not having any particular area of responsibility assigned to her, she was no doubt called upon quite frequently to help out with the cooking and cleaning and occasional supervision of small schoolgirls, but the activity which took up most of her time 
was handcrafting articles of sale on behalf of overseas missions. She did simple embroidery and handloom weaving and beadwork using the coloured glass beads cheaply mass-produced in nearby Murano. She particularly enjoyed the beadwork, and it became a hobby, which she kept up throughout her life, turning out little items as gifts for friends who treasured them because of the love she put into making them. As well as fancy work, she sometimes helped embroidered vestments and altar clothes. By now, she had acquired some basic literacy, though she only ever read her prayer book and the Canossian rule, and perhaps also the Gospels, since she certainly came to know their stories very well. In 1902, in compliance with the express wish of Patriarch Sarto, she was moved to the Canossian house in Schio. When told of the transfer, she just smiled and said, We are always in the house of our Lord. The following year, to everyone's great surprise, Sarto had to leave Venice forever when he was elected Pope. He took the name Pius X. Except for temporary transfers, Schio was to remain Black Mother's home for the rest of her life. The superior, Mother Margarita Bonotto, appointed her assistant cook, and in 1907, she was promoted to head cook. All the sisters and children were delighted with the choice. It's never easy to cook for large numbers, but she saw it as a service of charity and did her utmost to produce really nice meals. She never minded putting in extra work to produce special menus for invalids, and she was careful to remember and keep food hot for sisters whose work schedules prevented them coming in at the main mealtime. In 1910, in obedience to her superior, she dictated an account of her life to be written down by one of the other sisters. Field Hospital When the First World War broke out in Italy, though formerly allied to Germany and Austria-Hungary, was under no obligation to get involved and at first remained neutral, but in May 1915, came in on the Allied side after being promised territorial gains at Austria's expense. The Italian government was particularly keen to annex South Tyrol, a largely Italian-speaking region which at that time belonged to Austria. But the decision for war had been a gamble, taken in the belief that the Allies were on the brink of victory. Italy was desperately unprepared to fight, and the Austrian units rushing in to defend South Tyrol which they considered an integral part of their own country, put up a tenacious resistance. One night in May 1916, a column of wounded soldiers reached Schio from the front. An officer knocked on the door of the Canossian convent to ask if any space could be made for them, and very quickly the house turned into a field hospital. Most of the sisters were transferred to Murano, but Black Mother stayed on, still as head cook though now with soldier orderlies assigned to work under her in the kitchen. She also sometimes helped out with the nursing. There wasn't always enough bedding, and once when a man was brought in with a fractured skull, she ran to fetch her own pillow for him to lie on. The patients loved chatting to Black Mother, and the convalescents would all gather round to hear her tell her life story. She also talked to them, and to the orderlies, in no-nonsense terms about God, wouldn't tolerate bad language, and reminded them to go to confession. 
not all of them appreciated the preaching, and some of the orderlies decided to play a trick on her. When she was walking past, they suddenly set off an ear-shuttering alarm. She didn't turn a hair. Astonished, they asked, Aren't you afraid of death? Anyone whose soul is in the right place doesn't have to be afraid, she answered. The war continued to go badly for Italy. Morale was low among the poorly equipped and abysmally led armed forces and among the civilian population, faced with shortages of basic foodstuffs. Everyone was on edge. Once, when Bikita went out for a walk with her mother's superior, a military policeman tried to arrest her, assuming that any non-native was automatically a spy. In October 1917, the Italian line collapsed at Caporetto, allowing the Austrians to push forward for about a hundred miles to Monte Grappa, within sight of Schio. The disaster caused consternation throughout Italy, but a year later, the disintegration of Austria-Hungary made it possible to launch a counter-offensive, allowing the Italian army to establish effective occupation of the contested territory before, on the 3rd of November 1918, hostilities formally came to an end. A Serious Illness In 1922, Bikita fell ill. The doctor diagnosed pneumonia and advised the sisters to call a priest. But a few days after receiving the last rites, she turned the corner and began to recover. When the doctor informed her she was off the danger list, he was taken aback to hear her say, What a pity, when I was already so well on the way out. It would have been better for me to keep going. Now I'll have to do it all again. Following her illness, Black Mother was relieved of her post of head cook and given lighter work. For a number of years, she served as porteress, opening the door to the mothers bringing their children to school and nursery every morning, and dealing with contractors and delivery men and general callers. Lots of people used to make up excuses to drop in at the convent just out of curiosity to see the black nun. The odd thing was that after they'd been talking to her for just a few minutes, they felt as though they'd known her all their lives and were pouring out all their sorrows and worries. Because she'd known what it was to suffer, she always understood. But she wasn't just a sympathetic listener. From her, they could draw strength and courage to face life again without fear. In August 1927, she had the joy of taking her perpetual vows in the Canossian house in Mirano. Early November 1930 found her temporarily at another of the congregation's Venice houses, where, in obedience to the superior general, Maria Cipolla, she underwent a series of interviews in which she recounted her life story to Ida Zannolini to be written up for publication. This biography, a marvellous story, sold like hotcakes in Italy, at two lire a copy, and it was also translated into other languages and tourists began travelling to Schio, wanting to meet its heroine. Called down to the parlour on one occasion, at a particularly inconvenient moment during recreation, she quipped wryly, Mother, if it costs two lire to read me, how much does it cost to see me? Although she struggled hard to overcome her irritation and always received even the most insensitive visitors with humble courtesy, she never viewed her meteoric rise to fame as anything other than an unmitigated nuisance. 
on tour. Nevertheless, towards the end of 1932, her superiors resolved to put her celebrity status to practical use. She was asked to go on tour around the towns and villages of northern and central Italy to participate in a series of publicity and fundraising events in support of the congregation's foreign missions. Although Black Mother could always establish rapport and make herself understood well enough in any face-to-face situation, she completely froze in front of a large audience, and in any case, her Italian wasn't up to giving a formal speech. So she was teamed with another sister. Leopoldina Benetti was likewise in her early 60s, but an experienced missionary who had spent 35 years in China. At each gathering, Mother Benetti delivered a talk on the missions. She then recounted the marvellous story, while its subject sat quietly beside her on the platform, and only at the end turned to her to ask her to say a few words. Immediately, Black Mother hopped up and thanked everyone for coming, and then just said simply, Be good. Love our Lord. Sometimes she added, Pray for those who don't yet know him. It's such a great grace to know God. Then she sat down again. Meanwhile, Mussolini's fascist dictatorship, which had promised great things to Italy, was signally failing to deliver. To bolster his credibility, he needed to win a dazzling victory anywhere, anyhow. The choice of target was easy. Italy had been smarting ever since the humiliating defeat in 1895 of its first attempt to invade Ethiopia. The time had come for vengeance, and in October 1935, the second successful invasion was launched. The campaign was over in six months. In December 1936, Black Mother together with a group of young missionaries about to depart for Italy's new African colony, was formally received by Mussolini at the Palazzo Venezia. As yet, even well-informed circles in Europe did not know that, on his instructions, his army had ruthlessly massacred Ethiopian prisoners of war and wiped out whole villages with poison gas. Black Mother certainly could have had no idea at the time, and she may never have known. Nor do we have any record of what, if anything, she thought of the dictator. However, it's probably safe to assume that she found more personal significance in a subsequent audience with Pope Pius X. These two receptions in Rome were the culmination of her mission promotion campaign, Much to her relief, the heavy programme which had been going on without hardly a break for about three years now came to an end. She had not enjoyed those three years at all. However unselfconscious she might be in skiel, she found it a heart-wrenching ordeal to be constantly on show in front of huge crowds of people whom she would never have time to get to know properly. The presentations had been wildly popular. Very often, when they were held in a town, the traffic was snarled up in all directions with people trying to get there. Mother Venetti knew perfectly well that they weren't coming to hear her talk, but to see Black Mother, and there was never any indication that they were disappointed with her when they saw her. But why all the excitement? 
Of course, her colour made her a curiosity, though she wasn't the only black Sudanese nun in North Italy. Thanks to the ransoming efforts of fathers Olivieri and Veri, there were several others. In the course of her tours, she had been taken to meet one of them. Sister Maria Agostina, a visitation nun in an enclosed convent in Soresina. The clerist sister Maria Giuseppina, Zainab Alif, originally from Kordofan, would have been a more obvious candidate for celebrity status. She was well-educated, showed outstanding leadership skills, and had served as abbess of her convent. Nevertheless, it was Bikita's story that really hooked people's imagination. A large part of the reason certainly was that she had undergone more dramatic physical suffering than any of the others. Straightforward curiosity about her colour had never upset Black Mother, even when expressed in particularly stupid ways. Once on a train journey, a woman had started talking about her to Sister Benetti, asking how long she'd been in Italy. When told 50 years, she expressed amazement. So it's taken 50 years for the palms of her hands to turn white? Black Mother broke in. Give me another 50 years and the backs will turn white too. However, the marvellous story had evoked a huge upsurge of cheap sentimentality and whenever Black Mother had to deal with people en masse, it was this element which she found most noticeable. It caused her agonies of distress. Mostly, she refused to talk about her unhappiness, except to God, but occasionally, when she could see that another sister was deeply concerned and worried about her, she would try to explain. She didn't like the crowds and the way they pressed up against her, and she didn't like the fuss, but most of all, she was upset by the way, after listening to her story, everyone felt so sorry for her and kept saying, Poor thing, poor thing. Thing. Why did they keep on and on missing the point? Why this total failure to understand that her story was a happy story, to grasp the good news that God had given her the mission of proclaiming to the world? All her suffering had been for a purpose. It had been the way chosen by God in all his great love and wisdom to bring her by a sure and safe path into the kingdom of heaven where she would live happily ever after lost in adoration of the divine bridegroom. I'm not a poor thing because I belong to the master and I'm in his house. People who don't know our Lord, they're the ones who are poor. With the children in Skio, she had never come up against anything like this. They had asked her directly and straightforwardly and she had replied in the same way. If I were to meet those who kidnapped me, or even those who tortured me, I would kneel down and kiss their hands because if those things had not happened, I would not have become a Christian and would not be a sister today. Black Mother stayed on for another two years at the Canossian house in Vimercate, where the missionary novitiate was located. Occasionally, she went off again with Mother Benetti in response to a request for speakers at a fundraising day, but most of the time, She served as portress, minding the entrance lodge. There, while the worst of the pressure was off, she could still play a key role in fostering mission work, which was certainly something she cared very strongly about. Most visitors to the house were parents of prospective missionaries, many of whom had still not come to terms with their daughter's choice. Black Mother would urge them to look at it from another point of view. 
how many thousands of people in Africa would be brought to the faith if only there were missionaries to tell them that God loves them and that Jesus Christ died for them. It was precisely for the sake of all those people in Africa that she put up with the misery of being on tour. Let's hope it will help the missions, and especially my missions, and it doesn't matter to me that I'll never see them on earth, because I'll see them in heaven. She knew very well that helping the missions wasn't confined to fundraising or going out to Africa as a missionary. She was making the most effective contribution possible just by doing what she was asked to do and offering up her sufferings to God in humble obedience. This insight enabled her to help a heartbroken novice who was being sent away from Vimercati because her health wasn't up to scratch. Her dream of going to the missions was dashed forever. Black Mother said, Courage! You and I will be both of us be saints and missionaries and save many souls by staying here. Skeel will be spared. At the end of 1938, Black Mother, now 70, returned permanently to Skeel. Partly due to age and arthritis, but also because of the long-term effect of the terrible injuries she'd suffered when young, her health was deteriorating rapidly and she was finding it difficult to walk. Although she continued to help out with household chores around the convent, it was as and when she could. She would never again be charged with specific responsibilities. Following a fall in 1942, she needed a stick to get around and by December 1943, when she celebrated her golden jubilee, 50 years as a Canossian sister, she was using a wheelchair. One day, a visiting bishop asked her what she was doing, just sitting there. She replied cheerfully, I'm doing what you yourself are doing, the will of God. Everyone was terrified when the bombing raids began over Italy. Time and again came the question from visitor after visitor. Black Mother, will the planes bomb Schio? No. Don't worry, Skio will be spared. She insisted that no bombs would fall on any of the houses, and whenever the sirens sounded and planes were seen overhead, she just sat in her room in her wheelchair, paying absolutely no attention. The other sisters begged her to let them take her down to the air raid shelter, but she refused. No! No, our Lord saved me from the lions and the panthers. Do you think he can't save me from the bombs? People began saying to each other in the street that they didn't think the town would be bombed, because in Skio we have Black Mother, and she's a saint. But on the 14th of February 1945, 16 bombs fell on one wing of the Rossi textile mills, killing 14 workers. Panic-stricken, people ran to the convent. Mother, don't you see? They've dropped on Skio after all. Certainly, and they'll drop again, but not on the houses. No private homes will be touched. And so it turned out. Bridges and military targets were bombed and strafed all around, and on one occasion, 50 bombs dropped on the outskirts of the residential area, but failed to explode. 
not a single house was even damaged. Nevertheless, when Skio was liberated and the other sisters were celebrating like everyone else, she issued a warning. Pray and be good, otherwise something worse will befall Skio. This prophecy also came true during the political infighting that broke out in this time of confusion. About a hundred local people accused of pro-fascist activities, mostly quite minor, were locked up in the town jail, and a group of armed communist ex-partisans forced their way in and opened fire. Fifty-four detainees, including a number of women and teenagers, were killed in cold blood. Similar atrocities occurred in other parts of Italy around that time, but the massacre in Schio was by far the worst. By this time, Black Mother's health had deteriorated to the point that she was largely confined to bed. Being too ill to attend Mass didn't worry her, as she said her guardian angel would be present on her behalf. On one occasion, a sister got very upset to find that nobody had bothered to bring her communion. But she said, If he comes, that's fine. But if not, he's within me anyway, and I am adoring him. The doctors compiled a list of all the things that were wrong with her, but although she dutifully took all the medicines prescribed, they couldn't do a lot to ease her pain. Certainly she must have been suffering a great deal, but she only said, As our Lord wishes... It's up to him to decide. If she was uncomfortable at night, she wouldn't call the infirmarian. Why should I disturb the sleep of those who need to sleep? I can rest later. But that mother has work to do during the day. Anyway, if I suffer a bit, it doesn't matter. I owe our Lord so much that what I offer him is nothing. I'm going to heaven. Towards the end of 1946, she took a turn for the worse and agreed to receive the last rites, though she knew she wasn't actually dying yet and said so. At 11 on the morning of the 8th of February 1947, a priest came to her room and jokingly asked, How do you feel about receiving communion now? I'd better because afterwards there'll be no point. I'm going to heaven. Towards evening, she said, The chains on my feet are so heavy. The infirmarian thought her mind was wandering. She pretended to be taking off the chains while actually lifting away the bed covers. Black Mother went on, That's fine. Now I must go over there to St. Peter. Yes, sure, replied the sister. We'll go over to the cathedral straight away, arm in arm, and walk up the long stairs. No, not that St. Peter's there, but St. Peter in heaven. I'll introduce myself to him and ask him to call the Madonna to me. At that moment, Black Mother's face was transformed with a radiant smile as if she really was seeing the Madonna. Look, look, you're here. Come, come, let's go to the Fandres. So when I'm there, I will never have to go away again. 
and I'll be there forever. Those were her last words. Next morning was Sunday and Black Mother's death was announced in all the churches in Skio. If anyone wished to pay their respects, they should go to the convent where her body had been laid out in an open coffin. The first to come in was an unemployed workman. Approaching the coffin, he took off his cap and started not whispering a prayer, but simply asking in a normal voice for help in finding a job. He and his family had nothing left and were desperate. After a few minutes, he went out, walked straight to the Rossi mills and spoke to the foreman who agreed to take him on. Soon, a queue had formed. Although the winter was hardly over and there was still snow and ice on the ground, a long line of men, women and children waited patiently outside for their turn to come in and walk slowly round the room in which the coffin lay. Some of them surreptitiously cut off pieces of her habit or locks of her hair to keep as relics. Others pressed into her hands personal belongings, wristwatches, fountain pens, necklaces and wedding rings, leaving them there for a few moments, then taking them back to be treasured always. Women lifted her hands and placed them on their children's heads in blessing. None of the children were frightened because Black Mother didn't seem at all like a dead person. She hadn't gone stiff or cold, but just lay there smiling and peaceful, as if she was only asleep. Late on the Monday afternoon, the sisters were about to close the coffin when a telephone call came from the Rossi Mills, asking them to wait a bit, as a large number of workmen wanted to come along once the factory closed. The funeral took place on the Tuesday, and after the service at the parish church, a procession nearly a mile long wound its way to the cemetery. Canonization Pope Pius X was canonized in 1954. Maddalena di Conossa, who had been beatified during Bikita's own lifetime in 1941, was canonized in 1988. In the 1960s, a Russian Verona sister, posted temporarily to El Obeid to put some finishing touches to a large mural painting of Our Lady of Africa, behind the altar in the Catholic cathedral, had felt inspired to add two kneeling figures in the foreground, Daniele Comboni and Josephine Bikita, jointly interceding for Sudan. Thirty years on, both were officially beatified by the Pope, Bikita in 1992 and Comboni in 1996. During the millennium year 2000, Josephine Bikita was canonised. During the Mass on that occasion, Pope John Paul II drew out the meaning of Josephine's amazing life in the following words. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives wisdom to the simple. Psalms chapter 19 verse 8. These words from today's responsorial psalm resound powerfully in the life of Sister Josephine Bikita. Abducted and sold into slavery at the tender age of seven, she suffered much at the hands of cruel masters. But she came to understand the profound truth that God 
and no man is the true master of every human being, of every human life. This experience became a source of great wisdom for this humble daughter of Africa. In today's world, countless women continue to be victimized, even in developed modern societies. In St. Josephine Bakita, we find a shining advocate of genuine emancipation. The history of her life inspires not passive acceptance, but the firm resolve to work effectively to free girls and women from oppression and violence and to return them to their dignity in the full exercise of their rights. You have been listening to Josephine Bakita, a survivor of human trafficking, by Jean Alwyn Maynard, read by Sandra Geyer.